in uh, Judges this evening, so I'm going to talk to you a bit about that. The passage that I'm looking at is chapter 1 and then into uh, chapter 2, verse 5. So I'm going to read the whole of that uh, passage, so uh, hopefully you can follow it or if you've got a Bible for it. Um, but we're going to read Judges chapter 1 through to Judges chapter 2, verse 5. So it says, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord... Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, Come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. There you go, that's Old Testament stuff for you. Then Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. It's interesting, just pause now, I was thinking today about that and it gives you a little insight, doesn't it, about how kings in the Old Testament conducted themselves. And I was just thinking about, you know that story later on where um, David wants to do good to somebody um, and he chooses Mephibosheth. And you can imagine, I was reading it, I thinking, I can't understand now why Mephibosheth was so scared stiff. Because it's like, do you know what David's going to do to me, what they did to Adonai Bezek? He's going to cut off my thumbs, cut off my toes and make me eat rubbish from under the table. Um, and he will have had that mindset. And then when David gets there and, and hugs him and says, no, I want you to sit at my table and eat with me. What a wonderful story that is. But it gives you a little insight maybe um, into that passage later on. Anyway, verse 8, the men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. After that, Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated Sheshai, Ahiman and Talmai. From there they advanced against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kiriath Sephir. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksar in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sephir. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, so Caleb gave his daughter Aksar to him in marriage. One day when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What can I do for you? She replied, do me a special favour. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms with the people of Judah to live among the inhabitants of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephyr, 
and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore it was called Hormah. Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon and Ekron, each city with its territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive out the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites, who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. Now the tribes of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent mighty men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. He then went to the land of the Hittites, where he built a city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth Sham, or Tanak, or Dor, or Iblim, or Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labour, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Giza. But the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Ketron or Nahal. So these Canaanites lived amongst them, but Zebulun did subject them to forced labour. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Ahab or Axib or Helba or Aphek or Rehob. The Asherites lived amongst the Canaanite inhabitants of the land because they did not drive them out. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath. But the Naphtalites too lived amongst the Canaanite inhabitants of the land and those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced labourers for them. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plains. And the Amorites were determined also to howl out to Mount Herez, Ayajon, Shabin. But when the power of the tribes of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labour. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Sela and beyond. In chapter 2, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bokim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bokim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. It's always lovely when you get a passage with loads of names in it, isn't it? You know, you <sighs> through that now, it's plain sailing from now on. Um, just want to share three thoughts really about this passage things that I'm uh, and in many ways it's kind of thinking aloud uh, for me because these are just some of the things that I'm thinking 
Um, but when uh, Pastor Phil a few weeks ago said to me he was thinking about doing judges, and I was very positive, I'm positive about, you know, he could say anything in the Bible to me, and I'd say, yeah, well, let's do it, because uh, I love it all. Um, but when he said he was going judges, it was quite fresh for me, because I'm, um, I'm sure many of you do, but I do a, a read through the Bible every year. Um, and when Pastor Phil said that, I just really read judges. Um, and so it was kind of fresh in my mind. And, and yet, I found it quite interesting reading judges this time around. I don't know why. I felt a bit disorientated, um, because I read probably three or four chapters every day, and a psalm. And every so often, I, I had this feeling of, have I just, am I reading what I've already read? Because I get to this point all the time where it said, and Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And I'd read that and i think, have I just done yesterday's reading again today? Because it's this cycle. And when you read Judges, that's really what it's about. It's that cycle of, and Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, and currently I'm reading um, Two Kings, um, and it's the kind of same kind of thing. Apart from they have a different phrase. In Two Kings, it's, and they did what their fathers did. That's how it's presented in Two Kings. Um, but of course, their fathers were the kings who didn't go do good things. Occasionally you get one, like Josiah, bless him, who did what David did. So if they do what David did, you can tell they're a good king. But if they do what their fathers did, then it's not. So you get this cycle that later on uh, repeats itself. And this really is, is the book of Judges. Once you kind of get this cycle... Um, and the first, I'm fortunate because I'm the first one round, so I'm telling you the cycle. But what makes it an exciting book is that Israel sins. They come to a recognition that there's something wrong. Um, and they cry out to God and he delivers them. And what makes Judges an exciting book is that although that's true of every single story in Judges, the, the nature of the deliverance and the person who does it is very, very different. So that's why I think it's an exciting book, because you'll find that it, every person who stands up here for the next few weeks will be telling you about Israel being in sin, but what they'll also be revealing is the way that um, God delivers them. And that's radically different for each of the person. And, um, and you'll be pleased to know that there's some women in there as well. Um, because, you know, I don't think, as far as the Bible's concerned, you know, there's any difference between men and women. God uses whoever's available and wants to be used at that moment in time. So, um, so that's the first kind of point I want to make, is that's a kind of the pattern the second point I want to make, and, and I personally find um, these passages um, quite difficult to, to kind of read. Um, I don't particularly like uh, violence. I don't like um, films or whatever that are excruciatingly violent. Uh, I couldn't, you know, even though people told me that one of the previous... Um, crucifixion films about Jesus was amazing. Um, I didn't go and see it because I just knew that it was going to be incredibly violent. I don't, I don't, it doesn't sit well with me. Um, and the only way that I can um, understand these passages that we've read and that we will read, because Judges is really this 
revealing of Israel's attempt to take their land and the way that they deal with the inhabitants of the land. My only way of really understanding this is seeing it through the New Testament eyes of holiness. That's the only way I can make sense of it, is that I think that what God is teaching us is, is he's teaching us principles about holiness and the, the way that we are to deal with sin and the severity and the way that as God doesn't mess around with these people, the instruction is very clear, you know, kill them all, get rid of them all. When it comes to personal holiness, that measure of severity towards ourselves is God's expectation because sin is such a damaging thing. And I think that in this passage, you get a little insight into um, how God views sin and that he cannot tolerate it and he cannot compromise with it. Um, And of course, what is really important is that in all these passages, it is not that Israel could not drive out these people. It's that they chose not to do. It's not that they couldn't. I mean, what's the big deal about a chariot with iron? What's the big deal about that to God? Nothing. God's not saying, right guys, I know I said you've got to take hold of the whole of Israel, but you can't take that lot on because unfortunately they've got chariots with iron. I mean, God can laugh at them and the chariots fall apart. So it wasn't that they couldn't do it. It's that they chose not to do it Um, for a number of reasons. I think partly because they didn't see the necessity of it. I know God's saying that we've got to clear this land of everybody, but I don't know why. Doesn't seem all that important to me. Maybe they just weren't up for the fight. Yeah, I'm sure that taking on people with, um, with chariots with iron on, I'm sure that that's a big fight and that's really, really difficult. But look at some of the things that God does in the Old Testament. You know, whole armies die overnight. You know, I was reading in 1 Kings, 180,000 strong, 185,000 strong army dies overnight because God says you're not you're not going to fight my people so it's not that he couldn't do it it's just that they weren't up for the fight it was too difficult it's just like it's just too hard work and when you know when I was a head teacher at one in a million one of the things that I discovered is what there were barriers that young people had to learn in and one of the biggest barriers that my young people had to learn in was that they had no work ethic. They didn't realise that success in life was tied up with hard work. They'd been told in all kinds of ways that they could be successful without working hard. And one of the things I had to do was, so my motto was growth, I can get better through hard work and resilience. I had to kind of get against that mindset of hard work and wanting an easy life. I'd say to them, I know if you're in year seven and you're 11, it would be lovely if you could go to sleep tonight 
wake up when you're 18 and Man United knock on the door and say, would you like a, a contract to be a professional footballer? It would be lovely if that worked out, but it doesn't. And then I've been shot, shot dead recently because I'd always sort of say, and what young people are hoping is that maybe they'll win the lottery. You know, and I was thinking, that just doesn't happen. But it happened to my niece. She won 14.5 million a couple of months ago. Wow. Fantastic. 14.5 million. She currently earns £7,000 a week interest. Doing nothing. So my whole thing about you've got to work hard to get on in life has just been shot down in flames. Well, you have to work hard unless you're fortunate enough to, to, to win the lottery. But maybe the Israelites weren't up for the hard work of it. Um, maybe they believed that compromise was okay. You know, you don't have to deal with sin. You don't have to deal with these people. Just come up with some kind of a, a reasonable agreement. But it's not the severity. Um, and it, it leaves us in a difficult place. And if we look at Judges chapter 2, you know, we know God's view about it. Judges chapter 2 says, The angel of the Lord went from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land. But you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And also, I have said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you. And their gods will become snares to you. So, what God is, is saying is that when it comes to personal holiness, you cannot mess around with sin. And you cannot compromise and you cannot make agreements and that's again this isn't old testament thinking because jesus picked that later up in matthew chapter 5 um jesus said in matthew chapter 5 verse 29 if your right eye causes you to stumble gouge it out and throw it away it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell and if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. That's a really these are the words of Jesus in the new covenant. Um, I mean, imagine that you're discipling a young person um, who's just recently got saved. They come from a completely different um, mindset and they say to you, oh, you know, I'm just reading through Matthew uh, and I've come to chapter 5. And they come to you, you have a weekly Bible study with you and they come with a massive meat cleaver and stick it in your kitchen table. And then they sit down and they say, I'm going to need a bit of help. And you go, oh, why is that? And it's, well, I'm reading this passage in chapter 5 and my eyes are causing me to sin and my hands are and I've worked it out that... If I take my left hand off first and then do my eyes, I'm going to need help. So I just wondered if you could do my right hand for me um, and then I can fulfill what Jesus said. Well, we're going to laugh, aren't we, and say, oh, no, Jesus didn't mean those things. Um, he didn't mean that at all. Oh, okay. 
Um, but what I'm going to tell him is that Jesus is setting down principles about holiness, setting down principles about sin, and making it really, really clear. Do not underestimate the power and the damage that sin does in people's lives. And don't think there is anything else that we can do to compromise ourselves out of that. Holiness is a serious matter. Personal holiness. Um, and it requires us to, to, to take radical action. Now that's the only way I make sense of all these passages that we read where, where peoples are annihilated. I just think... What is that about? And it reminds me time and time again about when it comes to my own personal sin and my own holiness, don't mess around with sin. Don't underestimate its power. Don't think that you can compromise and live side by side sin within your own life because ultimately it destroys you. But then... The kind of final thing, and this is really kind of thinking um, aloud, is um, these passages, you regularly get, um, particularly when you've been through um, Deuteronomy and other books, but through Judges, through Joshua, one of the things that the children of Israel regularly do is they erect um, altars or stones or things to remind themselves of the things that God has been doing. And I was just thinking about the way that God worked under the old covenant and the way that God currently works under the new covenant. And thinking, what is the difference? What is the difference? Um, it's interesting, Christine, when you said about, uh, at the beginning, about, you know, why isn't Sunday like every Easter Sunday? Um, and I think exactly that. In fact, I think exactly that because I, I wasn't here on Easter Sunday. I had to go to the church where my grandson was because he was doing a, a Bible reading. So, you know, it's that granddad has to be there to hear him doing his first public Bible reading. Um, and, um, and I got the sense, because it's not my church, but I got the sense that the pastor was really excited about the worship on that particular Sunday morning. Um, and it, I got the sense that the way that the worship was, it was vibrant and alive and um, in a way that clearly it's not like that on other Sundays. So he was like, I don't want this worship to stop because this is amazing. <clears throat> and I was thinking... Well, if it's amazing today, why can't it be amazing at the next Sunday? Or do we have to wait for the next Easter service? For that one-off, you know, what is it? And I guess our only mindset must be, and I don't have this mindset, is, is the thing about Easter where we all pretend that it's the first time for us. So we come on Good Friday and pretend that we don't know that Jesus is really going to rise. So we all come glum, um, you know, and be miserable um, because Jesus has been whisked away from us and we don't know where he's gone. But then we come on early Sunday morning 
Um, and we're told he's risen, and it's fantastic. Um, I don't know what it is about um, Easter, but um, but I'm absolutely sure that, that that isn't how God works. It is how he worked in the Old Testament. He had these markers. Um, the markers would be a number of things. Either they would be like altars or buildings or bricks of stones, and when people walked past, they would say, what happened here? And then God would, or somebody would say, well, this happened here. God visited this person, and we've got that memory. Um, the key one that they would have is they would have these milestones in the year where they would have certain festivals. So like every year they would have the festival of the Passover. And on that one day in the year, they would remember the deliverance that God had brought them out of Egypt on that one day in that particular um, festival. And so there would be these markers that God would have in order to help people remember. And why? Well, because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They were a people whose relationship with God was without the Holy Spirit. Now we know, and God promised in Ezekiel chapter 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. And then just let's look at a couple of verses in, in uh, John's Gospel. In John chapter 14... Verse 15 to 18, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commands. John 14, verse 15 to 18. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And then in verse 26, <clears throat> it says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. So why don't we have those Old Testament markers in the way that the children of Israel did? Well, because we've got the Holy Spirit. We don't need markers. The Holy Spirit every day wants to bring to your remembrance the things of God and wants to bring about thanksgiving in your life so that not only do we remember Easter every Sunday, we actually remember Easter every day of our lives. That's what the Holy Spirit, that's why Jesus died. And why did Jesus go away? He went away so that he could send the Holy Spirit to live in us. And what difference does having the Holy Spirit live within us make? What's the difference? Now this is where I'm thinking aloud, because I'm thinking this through for myself. 
Uh, I'm thinking, if... Well, when I got saved when I was 19, I was involved in the Church of England Church, and I'd been involved there right through my childhood. I was a choir boy. I had a very beautiful voice in those days. Not anymore, but I did. I was a server. I was a crucifer. I was the whole lot. And then one evening... Um, I went to a youth meeting in Bradford and I heard the gospel preached for the first time in my life and I was shocked to discover that you could have a relationship with Jesus. Shocked. Nobody had ever told me that in all my church life. Uh, and I went back and I saw the vicar and I was quite angry with him, to be honest, but um, uh, I wanted to know why, why have you kept that wonderful truth from me in all the time that I've been in this church that I could know Jesus? And he said, well, some churches do it this way, some churches do it that way, we do it this way. Um, and then I wasn't there much longer after I got saved and, and I remember being in church and thinking to myself, I wonder what would happen if the Holy Spirit withdrew from this church, how would it function? And then, of course, I realised that the Holy Spirit had withdrawn many years ago, and it functioned quite well. But if the Holy Spirit withdrew from your life, or if we'd have got here this evening and, and somebody who was incredibly spiritual and trustworthy said, just to let you know, the Holy Spirit's not coming this evening. What would we have done? Would we have said, well, we'll make the best of what we can then? Or would we have said, well, there's no point? And when you think about the Holy Spirit in your own life, if the Holy Spirit was to withdraw from your life, would your whole life fall apart? Or would it be a bit more difficult, but it'll be all right? Or would it not make a blind bit of difference? You see, I, I just, I'm thinking this through for myself, and I'm just a bit worried because I think that somehow the church has found ways, and maybe it's the subtle working of the enemy, has found ways of displacing the Holy Spirit in our lives. Partly because we get into systems and mindsets that we can live our life on a kind of autopilot that doesn't quite require the Holy Spirit. And I wonder sometimes, and I'm thinking this through for myself because I'm genuinely thinking about this question. If the Holy Spirit wasn't in my life, what would be the difference? Because the right answer surely got to be we would fall apart. That's got to be the right answer, hasn't it? Um, but I'm not sure that I would. To my shame, I'm not sure that I would. But the difference between the Old Testament way of living was there were these markers. And every so often, we remembered certain things. But under the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit wants to bring to remembrance, wants to bring to you. That is his role. He doesn't want those markers, because those markers are what his role's about. He is the marker in our life now, and he will remind us. 
And I just wonder, you know, how much of um, we've allowed ways of doing things that then become habitual, and there are some good habits and spiritual disciplines lead us to good habits, but I wonder if there are some habits that we have created in our life that displace the Holy Spirit and that we no longer need the Holy Spirit because we've got ourselves into a place of comfort. I remember years ago talking, and I didn't want to say it to her, but talking to an old lady, um, and she was a very good um, prayer warrior, fantastic, you know, and if, you just knew that if you're in difficulty, she'd be praying for you, and it was lovely. But I remember one saying to me, um, uh, I can't get to sleep without saying a prayer before I go to sleep. And so I thought, really? And she said, if I'm not sleeping, it, I usually remember at some point that I forgot to pray. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure that that's right. That our peace is dependent on us doing and having certain rituals and certain routines. I think it's about the liberty that the Holy Spirit wants to have in our lives. And that if we're not careful, we kind of create things um, that displace the Holy Spirit. I mean, in your Bible, where does it tell you that once a year you need to tell your mum that you love her? Where, where does it tell you that? Well, but we, we do Mother's Day. And once a year we tell our mums, if they're around, that we love them. But the Bible tells you to honour your father and your mother. And the Holy Spirit wants to live that out in your life. The Holy Spirit wants the Ten Commandments not to be a set of instructions, but he wants the Ten Commandments to be how you live your life. In fact, when you read those Old Testament passages about the Holy Spirit, they're always about, and you will walk in my ways. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. The Holy Spirit wants to make us walk as Jesus walked and live out those commandments. And I think that sometimes, you know, we just have things in our lives. We have routines, we have these markers, and they've almost become altars in themselves. And God would say, just tear them down. And then you think, but if I tear down that altar, what is left? Well, what might be left is the Holy Spirit working in your life. That's what might be left. Because um, these things are not impossible without the Holy Spirit. I think that lots of things that we do um, sidelines Jesus. You know, any legalistic system that allows you to trust in that rather than Jesus is not what God has called us to under our new covenant. Um, he wants us to be totally and utterly dependent. Um, and I just wonder, you know, if the church isn't as effective as it could be, is because over time it has allowed the Holy Spirit to be sidelined in our lives. Now, I'm, I'm very happy for you all to dismiss anything that I'm saying. 
um, because I'm thinking aloud here. I'm thinking through for my own self and my own life, and it was just fortuitous, I think, that I was preaching at the same time that I'm thinking. Don't often happen. Um, so I'm just thinking aloud, but I'm thinking, what part does the Holy Spirit play in your life? And I'll ask the question again, if the Holy Spirit were to be withdrawn, would you fall apart? Because I think that that's how God wants us to live. That our whole life and dependency is about the Holy Spirit living in our life, talking to us, directing us, guiding us, leading us, reminding us of the things that Jesus taught us. Um, and is it possible to live a decent Christian life without any real reference to the Holy Spirit in our lives at all. Um, and I'm not, I'm convinced it's not. And I'm convinced that there are things that have been introduced into um, our lives and sometimes into our corporate lives as, as churches that, that mean that in some respects we don't have to rely on the Holy Spirit in the way that I think that God wants us to do. And I wonder, what would it look like? A group of people who were truly dependent on the Holy Spirit. What would that group of people look like? Uh, would it be us? Um, it'd be nice to think it would be. Um, but I guess for my, my own self or my own thinking, I'm just thinking again, um, you know, if it was a pie chart... Um, what percentage of influence does the Holy Spirit have over my life? Should it be 100% anyway? I think it should. Um, and if it is, but for me, what would that pie chart look like? Um, and for you, what would it look like? You know, how important is the Holy Spirit in your life? Um, how does, on a day-to-day -day basis, does the Holy Spirit influence how you follow Jesus? Um, I suspect it's quite important, this, because it's the only reason why Jesus didn't stay on the earth. The only reason Jesus didn't stay was, if I go away, I will send him to you. I.e., if I stay... I can't send him. And you will be like the people under the old covenant, living their lives without him. But I've got to go, because when I go to heaven, I'm going to send him to you, and you will know in the way that the old covenant people never knew the joy of the transformation that the Holy Spirit will bring every single day of your life. And so, as I say, I'm thinking aloud, um, you know, feel free to kind of ignore it. But I, I think that in amongst it all, there is something there for us. Um, and this is, you know, sometimes when you preach him, it's not what you say, but how you say it uh, that's important. Well, what you say is important. But what I often pray about is, Jesus, if you were here, because when you read your New Testament, and you, you read some of the things that Jesus says, sometimes he's incredibly tough and cutting. 
and other times he's incredibly gentle, like a shepherd. Um, and I'm wanting to be in that set second category this evening. I'm wanting to be in that um, kind shepherd mindset that just says, guys, have a look at the Holy Spirit in your life. Have you lost sight of what the Holy Spirit wants to do and can do? And if you have, don't worry. The Holy Spirit is still living inside you. It just wants to become a bit more important to you than he previously has. Um, so that's the spirit of what I'm trying to say. So if, if, you, if you go away feeling beat up, then I got it completely wrong. But it's simply how reliant are you on the Holy Spirit? Because if you want a life without the Holy Spirit, you can live under the old covenant if you choose. But Jesus died for a new covenant and he went back to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to change and transform your lives. Um, and I just think we're missing something. That joy of the Holy Spirit on a day-to-day -day basis. And if that is truly um, your experience, God bless you. Uh, and I hope that I'll get there someday. Um, but... Um, Let's pray. I don't know if you... Have you got a song to come back to? Um, well, shall we do that and then I'll, I'll pray afterwards.